0: Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and this is the Empire and Deep State series that I'm co-hosting with the American Exception podcast. And I'm joined by my co-hosts, Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis. This series is based on the book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State by historian and political scientist, Aaron Good. And today we're going to be talking about John F. Kennedy. We're going through a chronological history of the U.S. Empire and Deep State. And this is part three of our discussion of the JFK administration. And in the previous parts, we talked about JFK's early life and political career. We talked about the Bay of Pigs and Cuba. We discussed Vietnam and Laos, Laos or Laos. And today we're going to be discussing JFK's administration, foreign policy, and its relations with the global south or the third world. And specifically, we're going to focus on Indonesia and Africa. So there's a lot to get at here. I mean, the JFK administration, you know, is very complicated. His political trajectory changed even when he was president, of course. We've discussed how when he first came in, he had a, a more kind of conventional foreign policy, but he started butting heads with parts of the military establishment, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the intelligence agencies. And what we're talking about now in this third part is... JFK's transition toward becoming much more critical of US wars and intervention and much more supportive of nationalist anti-colonial leaders in the global South. And uh, this is clearly a huge factor in his assassination. And let's just, you know, um, Aaron, let's set the stage here. How did JFK's thinking evolve? How did his foreign policy evolve from when he entered as president and especially, how did his policy toward the Global South change?
1: As a senator, Kennedy had been more out there on foreign policy and criticizing the colonialism of the French, especially uh, in Algeria and in Indochina, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and so on. Uh, but he was also an establishment guy who generally believed in the establishment, uh, that he his father had kind of joined by virtue of making a whole lot of money and then Allowing his sons to have political good political careers now, towards the third world, JFK favored something a policy of engagement, more or less, which is a little different from the Eisenhower Dulles situation or their general policy. Uh, Eisenhower Dulles, you know, at Dean Acheson under Harry Truman, they, they uh, but especially it gets worse under Eisenhower and Dulles. Dulles says uh, essentially that neutrality is a sin. Uh, and that you're, if you're not on the side of the U.S., then you may as well be on the side of the, of the Soviet Union and communism. Uh, JFK had a more nuanced approach about this. And there's a the good book on this is by a history professor, Robert Rakov. It's called Kennedy Johnson and the Non-Aligned World. And he details how Kennedy sought a practice of engagement with the uh, formerly colonized countries, uh, meaning that you could work with them and allow them to develop on the basis of models that they themselves wanted to put in place. So you could tolerate uh, different policies that were nationalist and even socialist, um, if the, if that's if it helped these countries to try to develop. It was more. It was a little bit more tolerant in theory than the um, Dulles acheson consensus and the sort of colonialism of the earlier eras. And it could be described as cooperative nationalism, okay, that, that Kennedy accepted that the U.S. was going to, he's the president of the United States, he's going to pursue interests in the interests of the United States, but he didn't think that this, he thought that it was in the U.S. interest to help other countries pursue their national interests, so to support third world nationalism, to allow uh, leaders to develop their own country their own countries in, in a, uh, basically along the lines that they wanted. But he was a, he was not a communist. He was anti-communist. Uh, so he, he wanted decolonization to play out in a way that was actually real and, and would allow for these countries to pursue their own their own interests, which is a departure from what Dulles and Acheson really wanted, especially Dulles. Dulles was supposedly against colonialism, but really was totally for
2: neocolonialism. Well, yeah, and as we've talked about a a lot now, I think the underlying story here of of the series, we took a lot of time talking about theory for a reason because a big part of this story is, uh, you know, what liberalism says versus what it does. And uh, Schlesinger and Kennedy are sort of the er, uh, uh, liberals of a a new age that kind of have different commitments to breaking down empire uh, and not just in the sort of post New Deal sense, but specifically, uh, and I think Schlesinger is a good sort of intellectual idol of, of the, uh, the new frontier people in the Kennedy administration, is that they have this idea of the problems that, that arise out of liberalism, the crises and the contradictions are answered by more liberalism, more aggressive forms of the same. Uh, and that limits, even though we see that Kennedy is, is sort of pushing those limitations, there are these limits to the structural change, and you have these commitments, like we're talking about, to anti-communism on the global stage uh, that are inherently contradictory within uh, within their own approach of the Alliance for Progress and everything, because there are these limitations on, we wanna see these conditions improve, but with the limitation that it has to be within merit and the market and all of those things being tied together. And that if we just are more vigorous in our liberalism, that will be the answer. Um, and, and so I, I just kind of wanted to preface with that because we're, we're looking at some of the things that are well-intentioned and some of the freedoms and, and you know, I guess the well-meaning liberalism of the Kennedy era or the New Deal um, has has a certain undercurrent that limits how much it's actually able to accomplish. And I think we've We've laid that out pretty explicitly uh, over the over the past episodes, but for JFK specifically, he has to play this balance between the sort of rabid anti-communism of his local, you know, of the domestic pol- political world, specifically his military, and then have this sort of, you know, pure, not pure intentioned, but well-intentioned liberal interest in seeing the conditions of life improve in the third world. So, uh, in your view, how does he strike that balance?
1: Well, one way to try to make sense of what Kennedy, the, the way that Kennedy was trying to perform the balance act is to look at the guy, uh, Walt Rostow. Okay. He was an academic. He's also a super establishment guy. I mean, Walt Whitman Rostow, uh, was his name, his full name. And his brother, Eugene Rostow, was also a big establishment character. He comes into this story later on, but I don't want to spoil that now. Um, This will be in a future episode. But Walt Rostow was an establishment guy. He was with the Rockefeller Brothers uh, Fund on top of other things. And he was an academic who came up with modernization theory. And he even wrote this book called, um, like an anti called it, a non-communist manifesto. Okay, that was like the title or the subtitle. And it was about, his. it put forward his theory of modernization. And it was a way to, it it all seems kind of mm, a little nutty now because we're so used to uh, neoliberalism that we've kind of forgotten what made American liberalism even attractive. I mean, the liberals that when we say liberal today, we're not even, we're not talking about the liberals that that were american liberalism i mean there's a reason why they say nixon was the last liberal president but it's because the policies really change and you end up with this sort of dystopian neoliberalism to where you wonder why anybody would ever want to be associated with liberalism in the first place but in the u.s at this time you did have a society where people enjoyed you know political freedoms And also a lot of prosperity that you'd had widespread prosperity in the United States. Yes, you still had groups that were cut out of this. And it was built on enormous amounts of exploitation. And it was tremendously unequal. But it was still plausible to make a case for liberalism and capitalism at this point without being a a complete liar. Uh, And and so this is important to keep in mind. It's kind of hard to wrap our minds around today. Now, Ross, so Rostow, in the third world, you had... Marxism, material, historical materialism, Marxism. That kind of po- that that posited a a teleology, really, of of the way that economies and civilization were going to develop. Okay, that you had all these exploitative systems and class conflicts over time, and really the march of history is a bunch of class conflicts, and eventually you have capitalism, which sweeps away feudalism, but capitalism creates these two classes of exploiters and the exploited, and eventually uh because the capitalists create this ex- this class that's exploited they're going to eventually create the forces of their own demise that they're creating their own grave diggers as march as marx said right and that eventually you would have this uh move towards communism well the he rostow wanted a different teleology and so he comes up with modernization theory and this is like a liberal teleology Okay, so there and there, it's it's funny to think about how Fukuyama kind of puts forward his own liber, neoliberal teleology, and it's even it's even more ridiculous than Rostow's. But Rostow's was that what the difference between America, you know, the, the and the third what we call the third world, you know, is, I'll say third world a lot because it makes sense in this context. It was the first world is the the industrialized West, and then the second world is the communist bloc. And then the third world is formerly colonized countries. Okay. So the rest besides the first. I want to add a quick note on
0: that because the way third world is sometimes used in the global North today, it is used in a kind of racist way. You know, you'll, you'll hear people say, oh, well, it's like we're from a third world country or the U S is becoming a third world country. And and that's obviously racist, but, and the original conception of first, second, and third world, it was actually Mao who, if. He didn't create it. He helped popularize the concept. It was not in any way a racist concept. Sukarno,
1: Sukarno especially, was the third world guy.
0: Yeah, and Mao frequently in his writings, you look that he constantly wrote about first, second, and third world, that Mm. the first world was the imperial core. Of course, world systems theory comes later in Wallerstein and all of that. Today, what you could call the the imperial core, and the third world would be the periphery, and in world systems theory, the second world would be the semi-periphery. Or in the first Cold War, it would be you know the the Soviet bloc countries, the socialist bloc countries allied with the Soviet Union. But I mean, th- it's not it's not saying third world is not in any way racist, and in fact, there was a very strong third world nationalist movement of people who proudly used the term third world.
1: Yeah, and it, and, it's and, used. and and to me, that the system is worse than the nomenclature. Like some people really do want to get hung up on that, but like it, it like we know it, it's just a way to refer to what I want to refer to. So. Most people probably are going to be okay with that, but if you're not, sorry.
0: Honestly, third world is a better term because technically, I mean, I use global south because it's more accepted, but if you look at a map of the third world countries, not all of them are in the Southern hemisphere. A lot of them are, it's true, but not all of them. And then Australia is like, you know, Australia is technically part of the West, but it's also not in the west and it's also in the south even though it's part of the global north and the west so these terms are not just geographical either
2: yeah and then you were referring to when it gets thrown around one of the most insane times of course that comes to mind is after january 6th all the pundits going it's like we're a third world country and well, that's, the fact so that's, that it's, yeah. it's sorry the fact that it's used as an as an insult when Originally, and I I don't know that this really was like the core meaning, but the idea was they tried to make, you know, the first world was created and then they gave it another shot. And we're going to, you know, uh, you're talking about teleology that that we're going to rebuild a third world and it's going to, you know, actually have the interests of the people in mind of of four or five billion people, the majority of the people in the world, rather than just those in the global Atlantic North. and uh, the fact that it's been co-opted into being used as, as sort of a, a I, I hate to say a slur, but a, an insult for some kind of like chaotic lack of governance when uh, pretty much every single third world coup was of course backed by the U S like uh, it's, it goes beyond irony and and goes to a very, you know, it, it's very representative of the way that those dreams were, dashed again and again by a by a very specific group of people um, exercising their their power over it
1: yeah when you get into i mean the when you get into these areas it's also ironic there's deep irony and kind of really cynical business as well when you have kennedy assassinated one of the things that john mccloy says is like we need to show the world we're not like a banana republic which is ironic because people like him were like the people that were on the board of United Fruit Company, you know, which was and the CIA backed them and the same sort of forces got rid of Kennedy. So like he was he was wrong. We're what, we what we're ruled by the same people that rule the banana republic, which is corporate corporate interests.
0: What what they're saying really is, and this is the same with like January sixth and stuff, that rhetoric is the the coups and the assassinations and the terror and the crimes against humanity and crimes against dem- democracy that we carry out around the world should be carried out in those countries not in our countries. Yeah. In the periphery I mean, not in the core.
2: Right. We should this have is... the sense that that we have some, you know, participation in democracy because that pe- keeps people like we keep talking about invested that that their well-being is invested in the maintenance of American empire.
1: Yeah, well, that, and that's that's kind of what this whole business is. This modernization theory is a way to package uh, American progress as something that would be attainable for people in the third world. So it's a teleology that says, okay, you start out with this traditional society with an agricultural-based economy and lots of, uh, you know, everything is very labor-intensive, not capital-intensive, very little uh, trade, you know, outside of the borders. And a population that kind of has a primitive worldview, not they don't believe in science and technology so much, and then you have these preconditions that arise to to allow for a takeoff. Uh, you have a little bit more manufacturing, rudimentary manufacturing, a little bit more of a national international dichotomy. You know, like they start to look more than look at more than just their own territories, and then you eventually have a takeoff, an economic takeoff, a short period of intense growth where you have industrialization and workers and institutions become more, uh, become concentrated around new industry. Then the drive to maturity, which takes place over a longer period of time with rising living standards and more technology, the national economy uh, grows and becomes more diverse. Finally, you have the, the American, uh, you know, self-actualized state, uh, of the age of high mass consumption. So, Western countries uh, were part of this last uh, quote stage that was like deve- they were developed officially, and a country's economy is like flourishing in this capitalist system characterized by consumerism and mass production. So, this was a way to put forward uh, an an idea to the third world uh, that they could pursue these policies. They don't have to be communist. You can actually have development without communism, and did that, it it's in in terms of the particulars of it. It's, it's well to the left of what is advocated nowadays. So this is this this is a difference. And it, it was a way for Kennedy to be like, okay, anti-communism is a, a total reality in the United States. You cannot, these things are anathema to what American foreign policy would want to be and so on. and or, or what you could pull off of it with American foreign policy and American domestic policy. But we have a way to say, hey, we can actually improve living conditions here as well which would not always be the case in the u.s this actually was a time period where some of these policies allowed for some growth in the developing world or in the third world um developing world is another weird one i don't even want to try to unpack that but the point is there there were elements of this that were relatively progressive but they were very anti-communist and it was formulated as an anti-communist idea or a non-communist idea and this guy walt rostow who kennedy brings in is one of the main architects of the vietnam war and I think that's notable. Now, in practice, what this meant calling for in the third world was allowing, and, and the Bretton Woods institutions kind of allowed for some of this as well, even the early IMF uh, was, was kind of going to function this way, to allow countries to pursue nationalist uh, policies of of development. So you could have, uh, especially import substitute industrialization, Okay, meaning that the things that you use to import you would target certain things and then try to foster your own industries in this country like if you wanted to have a dairy farming industry because you know you you don't want to import you know milk anymore for example or like textile industry maybe you want to start making your own clothing you want to make start making your own machinery find ways to do that and you can put tariffs on certain goods to raise to raise money and to, con, to engage in protectionism to protect your balance of payments position like these were all kind of reasonable um progressive policies that were not like free market right-wing dogma approaches okay now and for for the for the 50s 60s and the 70s uh, really before the oil shocks and really even through the oil shocks because they were given loans the developing world experienced continual uh growth you know and, and pretty consistent growth in these areas now at the same time that this is happening you had things like cia covert operations that would overthrow governments that didn't, that, that went after really more, the more important and valuable at holdings of corporate America. So it still was a neo-colonial system. They weren't given the ability to like actually execute whatever policies in the national interest that they wanted to. And it wasn't just the communists that they wanted to crush. They also wanted to crush nationalists if they were in possession of valuable resources. I mean, places like Congo, Lumumba, L- 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 wasn't really a communist dulles even admitted that later for example uh neither was sukarno but they had really really valuable areas so they would not be allowed to pursue these kind of policies but other countries were later the u.s policy becomes um really best described by like Hajun chang as kicking away the ladder like rostow at least development theory kind of offered a ladder of development and it's a ladder that was similar to what the u.s used to develop its own economy the u.s developed its economy In the 1800s especially following the ideas of of um alexander hamilton and this american system where you had tariffs uh tariffs were the main source of income tariff and the sale of western land for the early united states of the federal government they didn't have an income tax and the tariffs would go the money raised from tariffs would a make american products more competitive because the other ones are more expensive but also it raised money to build canals especially and uh, other early infrastructure projects, especially canals. And this really allowed for an American takeoff. They also engaged in industrial theft, really. They stole trade secrets from the Brits, right? But then when the U.S. becomes more powerful, they want to crack down on these practices later. So eventually you end up with modernization and kind of liberal theories replaced by neoliberalism and free trade dogma. And that's what Hajun Chang calls kicking away the ladder, meaning the U.S. developed uh, with nationalistic trade policies uh, and protectionism and import and su- import substitute industrialization. And when they get to a position of really hegemony over the global economy, then they start kicking away the ladder, not allowing other countries to develop this way. And it's a good way to try to understand w- w- what the U.S. does in this, this era of the 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s, where the U.S. did try to allow for some kinds of uh, development You know as long as you don't run too far afoul of corporate america and you weren't communist then you could pursue these policies this changes when the with the end of bretton woods but this is what kennedy was doing and kennedy was doing it with an establishment guy this is important like this these guys are establishment dudes but they're coming up with some sort of liberal thing that you can say will actually improve lives we do care about improving lives we do want to show that democracy and capitalism can work and make the world a better place and still have the rich guys but they don't emphasize that but so it was a way to have progress but still be an establishment friendly guy but we come to see that those things are in conflict
2: and and a real quick side note on that idea of of uh 18th and 19th century development uh, a big part of that is these productive forms uh the corporate productive form and and the legal constructions around that and the lack of a central bank that sort of plays this limiting role. You have a lot of like uh, more dynamic liquidity in the financial system because it's so spread out. But of course, it's a lot more unstable and messes with your ability to control international trade, hence the creation of the Fed and so on. But um, a, a, a big part of that and to your point about import substitution, if you take an economics class, you hear that as sort of the gospel of development still. It still is kind of taken as as that's the answer. um and and that kind of comes from the old Ricardo comparative advantage thing that again, if you've been in an economics class, you know that the the assumptions are a little unrealistic. It tends to be you have two goods and the capital is freely interchangeable between the industries as if you could switch the you know from making butter to computers and have it be freely interchangeable instead of going across borders, say, um, like we see in reality. But um, Harvard, of course, is, you know, no fan of, uh, of, uh, of, of general, n- non-specialized economies, let's say. Um, but a bunch of data scientists at Harvard went and they put together this at- atlas of economic complexity. Um, and Steve Keen has done really good writing about this, that... What they found was actually the exact opposite of an in- import substitution is true. And so technological advancement and economic growth is always correlated with overall diversity in your economy rather than specializing in, say, a monocrop economy, which limits your ability to have interplay of different sectors, different technologies, new forms of production because you you know, if you look at Japanese car production in the 80s, like you're still getting innovation of productive forms that does create advantages that you don't get in a monocrop economy that's enforced from above by an imperial hegemon. And so across the board, if you take all of these international trade flows and these data scientists put them together, it is very conclusive evidence that specialization is not the answer. And I think that's a good thing to uh, stay focused on is that you will inevitably see more progress when you're allowed to develop your own internal economy not autarky but just a certain amount of self-sufficiency rather than being reliant on one industry because then you also are a slave to uh, you know the general global market and global labor arbitrage and the ability that capital can just up and leave if you're if your labor costs get too high or you get too too many unions going <laughs> so that's just a, a, an important note on on what exactly is successful about these third world nationalist movements? Even if they're not explicitly communist, it's more of their ability to create economic self sufficiency in the domestic economy, rather than just building a specialized economy that, in the moment, to you know your you Chicago economist looks great, but in the long term leaves you a lot more susceptible to crises and to be abandoned by whatever market that you're that you're bought into.
0: Well, and the point is to keep those countries dependent on the Imperial core and exporting raw materials. So if you don't develop your local industry, you have to be dependent on the import of the advanced technological goods and other products from the core. I mean, that's the whole point. And, uh, you know, this is very relevant today where we see there is this energy crisis that's going around the world, largely because of the proxy war in Ukraine and the Western sanctions on Russia and countries that do have energy sovereignty have been able to maintain much more stability whereas countries that are forced to import energy of course are are in much more difficult circumstances and we see global inflation but if you have a self-sufficient economy not only in terms of local industry but in terms of resources and things like energy you know the government can subsidize those products they can keep them at very low prices and and Bolivia is a brilliant example of this, even though Bolivia doesn't have energy, doesn't have local oil and gas, it does have other natural resources like lithium, but the government has been able to maintain with, through a state led mixed economy, but, you know, led by a socialist economist, um, Arce, Luis Arce, they have actually one of the lowest inflation rates in the entire world. And when he spoke at the United Nations at the General Assembly in September, Luis Adesay presented this very interesting 12-point program, a revolutionary program for transforming the world and supporting uh, socialism against capitalism and all these things. And he has one of the points is about his economic program. And everything he says is just, it's basically import substitution industrialization. He he, he talks about the key tenants and how he said, the reason we're successful is because we do the exact opposite of what the IMF tells everyone else to do. So... I mean, that's a clear example today of of a a clear historical echo of these kinds of leaders. You know, Luis Arrecy very much follows in the footsteps of the third world nationalists and the socialists who were carrying out these programs of developing local industries based on the model that the imperialist countries themselves had used to develop their countries and not on the IMF model, the Washington consensus model. But anyway... Getting back to JFK, I mean, this, this is of course all related to the JFK administration and the debates and conflicts that were going on within his own administration. How did these ideas of modernism, modernization theory, uh, development dem- development economics, how did this pan out in terms of the JFK's administration's, JFK administration's foreign policy toward Africa in particular? Because this is of course the peak moment of decolonization struggles across Africa.
1: Right. Everything was up for grabs in Africa. I mean, it was uh, in terms of how this decolonization was going to play out. There were people who wanted Africa to be for Africans, and then there were people who wanted it to be the same as it was before. And so how was this going to play out? Um, There's a good book on this, on Kennedy's policies in Africa, um, by a guy named Philip Muhlenbeck. It's called betting on the africans i've got a, a picture of the cover here and um it's it the subtitle is john f kennedy's courting of african nationalist leaders and this uh gives much more details than i'm going to go over here because i'm just going to summer i'm just going to mention a couple of things here but kennedy's policies in africa were uh, kennedy was very popular in africa especially because of his speeches about algeria where he spoke about colonialism and this was not the way African leaders were used to hearing Westerners speak about their country. Um, It had been a really brutal stretch for Africa um, for decades and decades, really, you know, I mean, more than a century. Um, But I mean, really, the Africa was the first place that the the explorers kind of started to take advantage of the Portuguese as they sailed all around Africa, right? So this goes way back to like the 1400s. And it's been, it'd been a tough, tough number of centuries kennedy was a western leader speaking about the evils of colonialism and he was the head of the most powerful country in the world later i mean he was a senator at the time but then you know they when he was the president they were very excited in africa to have somebody like them but i am there before as he takes office though he has this issue with congo and we'll come back to this but uh, you know kennedy supported leaders like kwame Nkrumah, uh the the uh, the first the first anti-colonial leader, you know the first so successful decolonial state was uh was Ghana, and Kwame Nkrumah was a person that the Eisenhower administration was not that friendly with but kind of tolerated because they wanted to be seen on the right side of as being on the right side of decolonization. but Kennedy was more friendly to to him and tried to work with him more. Uh, the CIA under LBJ would uh, apparently affect a coup here and get rid of um, Kwame Nkrumah. After Kennedy left office, but Kennedy supported him and tried to help him in different ventures uh, and and tried to woo him away from the Soviet being a a neutral or even, you know, Soviet friendly. Kennedy wanted to work with him. He also uh, worked with, um, tried to resolve the the crisis in the Congo created by the the Lumumba assassination. So uh, a great book on Kennedy's Africa policies is JFK Ordeal in Africa by Richard Mahoney. The cover image is, of course, Kennedy's reaction to the Lumumba assassination, which was, Eisenhower, which Eisenhower approved. Eisenhower authorized Lumumba's assassination. Um, so you see that Kennedy, you know, already in an image, you see a difference here between Kennedy and the uh, and the Dulles, the Dulles policy. These things get reversed. So Kennedy's was a reversal of the Dulles policy, and then later, when Kennedy's gone, these policies revert to the Atchison Dulles line, and they have a, a puppet. In running the Congo for uh, thirty years, really, and it's a reversal of Kennedy's policies. So, he he favored policies that would help Africa develop uh, much more than what came before and after him. The most pro-Africa
2: politician or uh, president the the uh, U.S. has ever had. So we've talked about Indonesia previously, um, but to pivot back to it, uh, where we left off is that JFK comes in. There's an ongoing conflict with the with the between the Dutch and Sukarno over uh, the Netherlands, New Guinea, J- JFK has no clue about the gold mine issue that Dulles and the Rockefellers are pretty monomaniacal about. That's that's really the long game here over, over decades of time. And of course, this is Alan Dulles's uh, intelligence masterpiece. So of course, JFK is going head to head with uh, with the same set of characters, um, but this is where some of the highest stakes uh, political maneuvering happens. So. How does JFK deal with another similarly resource-rich region of the world in Indonesia?
1: Well, as you say, he inherited a really messy situation, and it was Dulles' stage setting for him in Indonesia. And Dulles had a long plan that he'd already been working on for, you know, a couple of decades by the time Kennedy takes office. Um, very resource-rich island nation, and over this is, these are the current borders of Indonesia. But on the east, you have this very valuable area here, uh, West Papua. Okay. Now, under um, Eisenhower, they had become more reliant in some ways on the U.S., but they'd also become cl- close to the Soviet Union in various ways. We'll see. Uh, Dulles was aware of the gold that was located there and also aware of a massive oil deposits, and uh, Kennedy was not. So Kennedy takes office. But really, you have continuity in the CIA with the personage of Allen Dulles. And so this was going to uh, be Kennedy's, one of Kennedy's key challenges. And it was more important than Kennedy was even aware uh, because he was important, crucial facts were kept from him uh, at this time.
2: So in in the decade leading up to this, or let's say 15 years leading up to this, the UN has been... Uh, in large part, a handmaiden of, of U.S. imperialism, of course, enabling things like the police action, quote unquote, in Korea, and um, and and so it's it's very much been used for the same purposes that everything else in the in the national security state is by Truman and Eisenhower. But Kennedy seems to have the idea, and and of course, with the entrance of Dag Hammarskjold, maybe this is possible that the UN can be repurposed uh for and for the interest of the world and for third world nationalism and for more of a, a of a neutral process than uh something that would alienate the chinese and the russians so much that they are you know boycotting it for 10 years so how does jfk then try to use the u.n uh as he's going into third world policies
1: well besides um JFK and Alan Dulles, who are going to clash over what happens in Indonesia. And, and of course, the Indonesian head of state is a big player there as well, Sukarno. Um, You have the UN and Dag Hammarskjold. Dag Hammarskjold is the head of the UN, uh, and he's um, Scandinavian, Swedish, I believe, right? Um, And he was uh, one of the great statesmen of this era, and he was someone who was in favor of ending... Uh, managing decolonialism he was in favor of self-determination for the developing world so a lot of the information that we have here comes from on this the the hammer skull angle comes from greg Polgrain's book jfk versus island dulles and uh, some of this information we've covered in past episodes but the video for that got destroyed and so i'm going to review this here and happily we're going to be able to uh, salvage these slides which i repurposed for this so I hope that uh, people can handle the repetition if you've been following the previous Indonesia series very closely. Uh, and to my mind, it's, it's worth hearing more than once because it's actually kind of dense material and very important. But this, um, this, this was how they were going to try to, Kennedy was gonna try to use Hammerskjold in Indonesia. That's an important part of it. But also, he you know was was instrumental in helping Kennedy deal with the Congo as well. So maybe that's the best place to start. You have upon the once Kennedy's takes office and realizes that Lumumba has been assassinated. He gets the word from Adlai Stevenson. Uh, Other people didn't bother to tell him. Um, You have this Congo crisis, and it starts in July 1960. You had Patrice Lumumba was the elected, first elected prime minister of the Congo, uh, and he was wanting to use resources of Congo to help the Congo, the Congolese, Uh, and this would have been, unhappy, this would have made. US and British and Congolese interests very unhappy uh, because they're valuable resources there. You end up with the Congo crisis in July of 1960. So the the Belgian side revolts, they take advantage of the chaos of of decolonization and independence. One of the Belgian generals, a guy named General Janssen's writes on a blackboard, before independence equals after independence. And this kind of summarizes what the policy was. Now, Lumumba wants to work with Dag Hammarskjöld and be able to have the UN help to safeguard his country and keep them independent. Congo crisis, you have the country trying to break apart or elements in the country. Uh, this this breakaway province of Katanga, uh, led by this you know Belgian uh, slash Western stooge named, named Tshombe, uh, declares Katanga, a very resource-rich province, to be independent. You, in, you eventually get the United Nations operation in the Congo, UN operation in the Congo, and they weren't authorized to like really quell unrest or get involved in fighting. Uh, but the, the, the UN was the only way that the U.S. would be allowed to help under Eisenhower. Eisenhower wasn't going to commit U.S. forces, dedicated U.S. forces to this. Um, so it was going to be through the U.N. And Lumumba had been working with them. Uh, there's, there's an image of Lumumba meeting with Dag Hammarskjöld in New York City. Uh, they met over uh, July 24th and 26th, I believe. And uh, then, very shortly afterwards, the next month, uh, Alan Dulles and Eisenhower, they order Lumumba's assassination, declaring it a an urgent and prime objective. You have the coup on September 14th. Joseph Mobuto, a CIA asset, declares himself to be the new you know head of Congo. And Lumumba gets captured, famously, infamously, uh, images of his capture. We have a newsreel, too, that we will show. And on January 17th, he's finally assassinated. Now, 1975, uh, and Kennedy gets the word of his assassination and is obviously devastated about it, as we have captured in this image. So, in 1975, uh, the Church Committee report mentioned this poison plot and another shooting plot to try to kill Lumumba, but their position was that th- those failed, and so, therefore, the U.S. wasn't responsible for the assassination. Um. The minute taker interviewer, the minute taker interviewed by the church committee actually recorded that he recalls Ike ordering the hit. OK, this was not known until much later, I believe, around year 2000. Uh, it was published in The Guardian uh, and it was revealed that the, the records behind this were only revealed because of the JFK Records Act. So somehow it also served to declassify more of the church committee reports. Not There's still some things that are missing, by the way, that haven't been declassified yet, as I understand it. I think Richard Helm's testimony might be among those, but uh, I'd have to go back and look that up. But it's this is another area where the JFK Records Act is, reveals important parts of our own history, like Eisenhower actually ordering that assassination. To my knowledge, that's the only documentation of a US um, head of state authorizing the assassination of another head of state. We don't have that the, uh, for Castro. the Castro plots. Um, the, the Inspector General report said that the CIA was was acting without Kennedy's authorization. And that came out, that was released, you know, many years later. It was conducted in the 60s, but then only came out later. But who knows? It could be standing policy of the CIA not to admit that that's the case, that it was ever given authorization for these things, just as a way of maintaining its power with the president and the sort of veneer of like the president as being in charge of things that the CIA might even at times say, oh, we didn't have authorization for something we did have authorization for. We'll never know. You can't prove a negative like that. But at any rate, we do know that Eisenhower authored, authorized the assassination of Lumumba and that he was killed after the fact. Um, w- uh, and it was very, you know, obviously serendipitous for the U.S. Uh, I have a newsreel here that I'll show you that I'll that'll i play to uh, that, that shows the way that it was depicted in the United States, which is, this is, I think is really astounding. It was contemporary news footage. So this would have been from 1961 uh, before he was killed or at least before his death was known. So here we go.
3: A new chapter begins in the dark and tragic history of the Congo with the return to Leopoldville of deposed Premier Lumumba, following his capture by crack commandos of strongman Colonel Mobutu. Taken to Mobutu's headquarters past a jeering, threatening crowd, Lumumba was impassive at this lowest ebb of his stormy career. Mobutu watched as his troops manhandled Lumumba, but promised the pro-red Lumumba a fair trial on charges of inciting the army to rebellion. Lumumba was removed to an army prison outside the capital as his supporters in Stanleyville seized control of Oriental province and threatened the return of disorder. Before that, Lumumba suffered war indignities including being forced to eat a speech which he restated his claim to be the Congo's rightful premier. Even in bonds, Lumumba remains a dangerous prisoner, storm center of savage loyalties and equally savage opposition. Arriving in Los Angeles to begin a four-day honeymoon after a midnight wedding in Elizabeth, New Jersey, our actress, Sandra D, and singer, Bobby Darren.
1: I just wanted to let that last part play with Sandra D and Bobby Darren just to for the contrast there. So, the that footage to me is really amazing. And uh, if you don't have a pretty strong hatred of imperial Western imperialism, uh, maybe that clip would give you a little bit more uh, fuel for that. I mean, they say uh, the, the music is like sort of dark and scary. The way that, and it depicts africa you know in that way uh, they say darken the dark and tragic history of congo which is like yeah why is that what's what's made it so dark and tragic and then uh they call lumumba pro-red when really he he wasn't they make no mention of the fact that he was democratically elected uh mobutu is a cia asset of course that would not be mentioned i mean they wouldn't know that but you know it's pretty obvious now they say that uh lumumba rather than being the democratically elected prime minister of congo um, they say that he was inciting the army to rebel, you know, that, and that he'll be given a fair trial. Well, he was elected, so he can't. That's not really incitement. He's supposed to be the head of state in Congo, and uh, he wasn't given a fair trial. He was executed. He was beaten, and then executed by firing squad. And then they dissolved him, his body in sulfuric acid, to make sure that there'd be no remains or any spot that would serve as a sort of rallying point and make more of a martyr out of Lumumba. Uh, so that that was that was the reality. And then, of course, in this news clip, you see they talk about bobby darren um and uh the, the starlet who's uh, who's the starlet i uh, the name escapes me now but Sandra D I think they say Sandra D and Bobby Darren, right uh, which is like essentially like imagine if you saw like a a clip talking about how great it was that Gaddafi got killed and Hillary Clinton laughing about it, and then the next thing that comes on the screen is like something about Kim Kardashian i mean this is just uh you know history kind of repeats it's really it's really it's really something um but this was th- this was a example where you have the un trying to get involved people like hammer scold would have wanted to work with try to work with lumumba kennedy wanted to work with lumumba uh the united nations wanted to work with lumumba the congo a lot of congolese people wanted lumumba to be successful but these western powers weren't going to let it happen they assassinate him and uh, they're able to subvert the, the, pre- the policy of the incoming president of the United States and the United Nations. No, none, those things don't matter. Instead, you get the policy of Alan Dulles and you know the imperialist West, and that is a policy of uh, assassination and neocolonialism.
2: All right, so turning back to Indonesia then, why was Indonesia such a difficult foreign policy issue for the Kennedy administration?
1: Well, you had with Indonesia... Uh, a, a real balancing act between the U.S., Soviet Union, Indonesia, and the Dutch, and the UN as an actor in this as well. Uh, the West Papuans are important, even though they don't have—they're very powerless. Uh, you had the people of West Papua, who also were a separate force potentially. Um, it, for the in the U.S., you di- the the Dutch. That was their most valuable colony was Indonesia, and really the most valuable possession was West Papua although its resource wealth was known to the Dutch, but not to other actors. And it really hadn't been developed. So it was a very strange situation where they knew there was this windfall for whoever would end up with West Papua, but this was unknown uh, to other actors. And it, it complicates things because the Dutch don't really have a legitimate claim to West Papua any more than they have to any other rest of Indonesia. It's colonialism. It's halfway across the world. It's obviously illegitimate. And it's that's becoming recognized and colonialism is on the way out the soviets the us is worried about the indonesia as a on the being on the in the soviet camp or the communist camp because they have the biggest communist party in the world outside of china and the soviet union so they are potentially but their communists were not doctrinaire uh soviet style communists you know they they were actually religious they were mostly non-doctrinaire they were largely not even that ideological they were really largely just rice farmers and peasants who wanted land to be able to grow rice and survive and have a subsistence existence um and that so it, it was but it, for the us it was perceived as a big cold war uh you know prize one way or the other so they they didn't and the us also wanted to keep dutch the dutch on the on, friendly to the U.S. and keep a NATO ally happy, and so on. So they, they had to negotiate this kind of carefully. Um, in because the U.S. is you know what, is uh, a little standoffish towards Sukarno and wants to be friendly towards the Dutch, and they don't want Sukarno to be able to supplant the Dutch, or at least maybe I mean they they sort of do, but they don't. They're they're careful in how they manage the Dutch situation or the Indonesian situation. Like they actually want. And Alan Dulles actually wants the Indonesians to be able to kick the Dutch out of Western New Guinea. They needed to make that part of Indonesia, but he didn't want Indonesia to be too uh, prosperous and successful. And Congress also wasn't gonna give them a ton of aid necessarily either for domestic political reasons. The end result is that Indonesia has to go to the Soviet Union for aid, an aid package, and they work out a big arms purchase. General Nasution, who is pictured here, in this image, talking to Nikita Khrushchev, goes to Moscow, works on an, arm an arms purchase uh, to, for fighter planes, subs, and warships. And it's the plan is to use them for the Dutch-Indonesian dispute over Netherlands-New Guinea. So probably another reason that the U.S. felt like they couldn't do this so easily, actually be the one to supply them with the weapons, was that it, the Dutch wouldn't be happy about it. So because Eisenhower had rebuffed all these requests for aid. Now... So the result is that you get this deal with Indonesia. And then the question is, Are they is Indonesia more friendly to the communists now because of this? Uh, Ed Lansdale, who is, uh, you know, notorious Alan Dulles acolyte and uh, covert operations man. He writes a national intelligence estimate on the package, the the arms package. It's about $600 million for arms and about $500 million for economic assistance. At Rand, you have Guy Pauker, who, uh, you know, Peter Del Scott knew, um, was Berkeley professor also. Um, he was, uh, trying to, he, he wrote reports on this also, and he questioned Nasution, General Nasution, one of uh, the top guys for Sukarno over there, um, about this. And, uh, he, he actually tries to argue in three Rand reports in a journal article that Nasution was unduly influenced by Moscow and was a, was communist friendly of some kind. Nasution is not happy about this. So he contacts Secretary of State, Dean Rusk and Howard Jones, who's the ambassador, and he wants to affirm that he is anti-communist. He wants to say, listen, I'm not a communist. Stop saying this, okay? But for different Cold War reasons, there's an incentive to characterize people as communists uh, for different reasons. But but, he, but Nisushin himself was not a communist and really was pro-U.S. He would have preferred to do business with the U.S. and to work with the U.S. It's just the U.S. wasn't going to happen, wasn't going to let that happen. Uh, when during this time period, as Kennedy is being briefed on all of this, you know, he's got the national intelligence estimate and they're they're making plans about how to handle Indonesia. And he's also being informed of just what the U.S. policies were back in the 50s. And Kennedy is kind of shocked at this. And he says this at the time, he says, uh, no wonder Sukarno doesn't like us very much. He has to sit down with people who tried to overthrow him. OK, but Alan Dulles, meanwhile, is not explaining. He might explain what the policies were and some of the covert action stuff to Kennedy that they had been using against Sukarno. I'm sure he doesn't tell him all of it, but he never tells him about the uh, the prize in Indonesia. Alan Dulles knows about this, but Kennedy doesn't. And so, you know, his response is probably just more to fantasize and think about the the gold and the oil that's available in Indonesia. Uh, and in West Papua that Kennedy doesn't even know about and that Sukarno doesn't even know about. The oil well which became the most productive oil well in Southeast Asia later when it, when it goes online in the 70s, um, it was discovered in 41, 1941 and basically kept hidden, uh, kept secret. The gold was discovered in the 30s uh, in the Grasberg, this huge mountain gold deposit in West Papua remote, but it was also kept secret except to the Dutch and Alan Dulles was the person who created the company that funded the expedition that discovered this. So it, uh, when he was working for Sullivan and Cromwell, so Alan Dulles is like this intelligence guy, but he's also connected to the pinnacle of wall street power. He was like their lawyer. They're essentially their intelligence man, uh, as a private, as a oil intelligence person, uh, and, and lawyer in the, in the third back, going back to the thirties at least. So it's, uh, it's 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 an amazing situation here with this, and the the key players and Kennedy and Sukarno are unaware of this. That that is is just uh, staggering, I think.
2: And this is part of uh, your point about them having to turn to the Soviets for aid. This is part of the problem with the sort of Alliance for Progress approach, which is that we have some kind of duty to you know give foreign aid to the world, and obviously that's very familiar today. But even in Guatemala, part of how they uh, make Make Guatemala appear that it's it's being taken over by communists is that they withhold any help, they withhold materiel and then they have to you know get these arms shipments from somewhere, and they turn to the second world, and um and they end up with a bunch of you know basically useless weapons, but along the way it's it's enough to malign them as somehow aligning with the the Soviets just because they're 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 trading with them, and we see that in the case of Sacco and on top of that. The fact that you make someone like you know even a large country like indonesia dependent on us aid and the prospect of us aid is that uh it, you know it, if you make any other move you're going to be again maligned as a communist like sukarno was or you're sort of just left hanging in the instability of uh, economic collapse especially with like the energy crisis and and um a- essentially the attacks on the indonesian economy at the time uh, so Carno does come to to Kennedy a couple of years after this in the same situation. The political capital is again not there uh, to give him any aid, and that causes the kind of instability that either causes things like turning to Suharto and the and the right wing movement, but also to increase support for the communists. And that's always what's going to happen is sort of the Polanyi theory of uh, of people turn either left or right in the, in a moment of crisis. And so if you're going to push for a Kennedy-style uh, global liberal empire, then you also need to maintain some stability. And if you can't muster up the political capital domestically to give any help, then you can't be surprised when, when, when you can't uh, maintain that relationship with the Indonesians over time. And that, you know that's part of what it, the dynamics at play when you then turn to, to LBJ later. But how does on the specific issue of Netherlands, New Guinea and the gold mine, uh, or, or the Prospect of the Mountain of Gold. Uh, how did JFK want to deal with with that issue with with Hammerskjold and with the Dutch?
1: Well, this ends up being, among other things, uh, a contest between the Spymaster uh, and Dag Hammerskjold. So you could think of this as Alan Dulles versus Dag Hammerskjold and who really is going to decide how the world is going to be run. You have Alan Dulles, director of the CIA, and de facto CEO of the American Deep State. I think that's a fair characterization. He's tied in there. Sullivan and Cromwell, Council on Foreign Relations, clandestine operations. That This is really what we're talking about. Versus Dag Hammarskjold, who is the United Nations Secretary General. Uh, and he is there to represent something like a, a global democracy, really. I mean, that's it, it, the word. even the words democracy now are are, are sort of tainted in a a way because of the fact that it's the U.S. that's, uh, you know, putting it out there, but acting in an oligarchic imperialist fashion, right? But always saying, oh, democracy, democracy. But the U.N. was the ambitions of the world, the progressive ambitions of the world to have a a world that was more characterized by a democratic uh, global governance rather than top-down despotism. And I mean, governance with respect for national sovereignty and so on. So this was... Uh, very competing visions of the world. And they clashed. Uh, Hammerskull represented something diametrically opposed to what Dulles was doing, and he pursued it that way. Uh, he was someone who legitimately wanted to help um, the third world to be able to escape uh, Western domination. So Hammerskold's plan was uh, to use the UN to uh, eventually grant sovereignty to West Papua, to Netherlands, New Guinea. Um, This is a discovery from Greg Polgrain. And this is, I think, a really major discovery on his part. Um, He he was able to find out about this by talking to George Ivan Smith, who was the right-hand man of Dag Hammarskjöld. And he interviewed him in 1982 and spoke about these things. But um, Hammarskjöld had already announced to the Economic Club of New York in March of 1960 Uh, he announced his program through OPEX and a special new UN fund, UN fund, UN staff would become officials of the governments to which they have been assigned with the full duties of loyal and confidential service to those governments. So what this meant was the the UN could set up uh, special uh, organizations connect with states, the, the state authority of the state that they were in, right? They would work with them, to create competent administration in countries that did not have uh, that because of colonialism really hadn't developed their own strong administrative states okay so you could have people in an Afri- in an african country that had been colonized you could have people who are un officials acting as customs agents acting as uh, people overseeing the development of energy and infrastructure things like that. People coordinating national policy on complicated issues where they could take advantage of their expertise and the fact that they come from more developed countries with better educational systems, uh, they could use that to help these countries. So this is a very idealistic thing. And it's a way to deal with some of the the issues that afflict countries that don't have modern uh, developed infrastructure because of colonialism or because of how remote they were. I mean, West Papua, for example, wasn't so much a victim of colonialism because there was hardly any colonialism there. They hadn't really bothered to even, I mean, it's not that they would have exploited them and dominated them if they had been able to, but it was so remote and uh, that it, that it was difficult to really gauge. So this was a situation where the Papuans had been kind of largely left alone, uh, but they weren't going to be left alone forever. And so you could have the, the UN work to um, give the, have them, create a functional state. That was Dag's plan. Okay. Now, Kennedy himself was um, wanting to talk about this Indonesia problem. And in 1961, he, in April, on on when one day he meets with um, General Douglas MacArthur, who has some expertise in East Asia. And it was actually his, he had a headquarters on West Papua for a time and he would have been aware of the oil at the very least there. Who knows? Maybe he was aware of the gold. You don't really know. I I kind of doubt that part. But uh he met with him and uh J- so JFK wanted to talk to him about East Asia. You know, at one point MacArthur says, Don't ever get into a land war in Asia. And Kennedy would bring that up later to people who were trying to get him to bring troops into Vietnam and such. Uh, and would say, Oh, yeah, get car convince MacArthur and then maybe I'll listen to you. Okay. Um, but he later was, you know, Kennedy was in World War II. He was uh, uh, there with people in the Marshall Islands. He was rescued by people on the Solomon Islands, actually, to to be more precise. And these are the ethnically very similar to the people in West Papua. So the people in West Papua are not even Indonesians. Uh, If you see them, they look sort of, they look similar to like Australian Aboriginal people. They're like darker skin. They look more, a little bit more like Africans than Asians. Uh, if you've seen people who are, uh, you know, the people that were called the Aborigines in in, in Australia, uh, First Peoples. Uh, and so Kennedy had some kind of sympathy for these people. And he actually wanted to have West Papua be independent and he could use Hammerskold this way. Okay. So Kennedy's plan was really to allow the UN and Dag Hammerskull to sort of be his stalking horse for the policy that he wanted, which was West Papuan sovereignty via OPEX, which was that UN organization. The plan was to announce this in September of 1961 at the UN General Assembly, and this undermined the arguments of people who would say West Papua wasn't ready for independence, because if you have the UN ready to step in with some administrative, you know, skill uh, and resources, then you can weaken that argument. The argument of people who would say, oh, they're not ready for independence. This was his way of, uh, this was Kennedy's plan, and it was Hammerskjold's plan. Kennedy met with MacArthur and Hammerskjold in the same day. And then later in September, they were going to announce that.
2: All right. So we've gone over JFK and Dog and Hammerschold's plan, but how did the Dutch want to deal with the issue of Netherlands New Guinea?
1: Well, you have in the, in the Netherlands here, the foreign minister is this guy named Luns, and he went to meet with JFK. Uh, JFK had a choice to make about all of this. He needed to choose between supporting a staunch NATO ally, which is the Netherlands, or supporting a very important and key third world government, which was Sukarno's Indonesia. Um, April 10th, 1961, Lunds visits, Joseph Lunds visits the United States, and they have this strange negotiation or conversation, um, and it's, the, the, it's a cat and mouse game of sorts. Uh, jfk is really puzzled about this he's like he's really puzzled as to why the dutch were so concerned about this faraway island which was really a great burden uh for them right it was a great burden for them to like even run it or administrate it or uh, administrate why would you why were they so focused on this island jfk couldn't figure it out and um he, he couldn't understand why they wanted to continue with their Maintaining sovereignty or control over West Papua, uh, it appeared that the question was one of engaging us in possible hostilities on the political and maybe even on the military level over a very costly, primitive area of no strategic significance. So this this is the way it was recorded in the uh, foreign policy of the U.S. You know the foreign relations of the U.S. Uh, books r- books that they put out. Right, this was how it was it was explained. At the time, JFK didn't get it. Why are they so focused on this? Because even there, very costly area of no strategic significance. Well, it actually had great strategic significance, enormous resource uh, wealth. Okay, like like fat one of the most resource-rich places in in the, on the whole planet. Um, so Lunds, when he's talking to Kennedy, he never mentions the gold or the oil. So this doesn't come up in the conversation. This is why Kennedy is confused. Kennedy, on the other hand, does not mention the OPEX plan. So he doesn't mention that it's even a possibility for the UN to do it. He's trying to keep the cards close to his vest. Luns wanted to talk to Dag Hammarskjold uh, and do so before Papua independence to hope to bring um, the UN on his side.
0: So we've been talking about the policy of the US government and other Western officials, but what about the Indonesian side? At this, at this moment, Sukarno is president of Indonesia. He is a left-wing nationalist you know, socialist oriented. And he was one of the founders, the co-founders of the non-aligned movement. So he's very much involved in this third world liberation movement that we were talking about earlier. What, what was his take on what was happening?
1: Well, Sukarno comes to the United States in April of 1961. And uh, he has uh, some cool photo opportunities here. Uh, one of, you'll, you'll see some of them with Marilyn Monroe uh, I think this one is a, a great one, but kind of a disturbing one too when you think about what happens under LBJ. Um, JFK asks Sukarno, he says, why do you want West Irian? Okay, West Irian, West Papua, Netherlands, New Guinea, uh, the big island there with all the gold. Um, so he, he, it's they're a different race, for example, than the Indonesians, um, to, different language, different languages. Uh, and it was costing the Dutch more to administer the island than the Dutch would be able to get out of it. And, uh, he didn't understand why Sukarno himself was so fixated on it. Um, the Papuans, they had a caste system of sorts where you had the Dutch were obviously in, had the most power, but they sort of were sparsely populated on the island. There weren't, there wasn't a huge Dutch presence there. Uh, the Ambiri were there in, in Indonesia, um, and throughout Indonesia and at different islands, not just in West Papua, probably less there. These were, there was, there was like this caste system of, of like people in, in throughout Indonesia. Uh, the Dutch, the Ambiri, and then the Papuans were sort of like way down there, right? And the, the, the Javanese, the Dutch, the Chinese, and the Javanese in Java were the the, the main sort of the, the sort of hierarchy, uh, ethnic hierarchy. So the because there was a Chinese population throughout Indonesia that was also um, traditionally uh, maybe a little bit analogous to the way like Jewish people are perceived or the Hakka people are perceived in China. Like they were kind of a minority, but a minority that was uh, prosperous. And so there was like this hierarchy there and the West, it was hard for JFK to to understand why the Papuans even fit into this for Sukarno, how they, how they fit into it. So uh, Sukarno didn't like the idea of a plebiscite, you know, that was one option to let the West Papuans decide what they wanted to do, if they wanted to be independent or if they wanted to be part of Indonesia. Um, And this was something like a fourth world solution. Okay. This is sort of what JFK and Dag Hammarskjold wanted um for west papua a fourth world meaning that like what do you do about these countries these uh, nations these peoples within territories that are not going to be colonized anymore but they are there's new nation states but not all the people finish fit into them you know like ethnically and historically and so this is sort of a fourth world like not even a third world we're getting into something even more even further away um, the Papuans lived in highlands mostly, and they wanted independence. A lot of them didn't even know uh, that, that the island had been colonized in the first place ever or had been part of the Dutch. They didn't know of uh, the dispute between Dutch and Indonesia. I mean, it's really uh, a, a remarkable place, kind of divorced from time uh, during during this era. Uh, and But JFK also, he's talking to Sukarno, and he's realize he knows that he's not doesn't have all this freedom of movement he's the president but he already knows after the bay of pigs and laos and all these other issues that he's got really powerful forces against him in his own country at one point uh greg Polgreen tells us a, a, an anecdote about this that jfk and sukarno uh and jackie went into the bedroom in the white house uh and jfk said to sukarno well this is the only place that the cia can't eavesdrop on me so i wanted to talk to you to you back here but this was the setting that they were in and what they were trying to negotiate. So there's a lot of deception and lies of omission and so on by all the parties involved here in this Kennedy, Sukarno, uh, uh, this the um, Alan Dulles, most of all. And this was the setting uh, for the, this was the scene uh, for Kennedy here at this point in time. He still has uh and his plan, his sort of, Trump card, which is to use the UN to help to resolve this dispute, but also to bring Sukarno over to the US side uh, but and still keep him on the US side, even though you're using the UN to pry West Papua away from both the Dutch and the Indonesians. I mean, this is a case of the president and Dag Hammarskjöld really wanting to do something positive and it, for apparently not cynical reasons, which for us today is hard for us to even wrap our minds around, but there it is.
0: Yeah, well, unfortunately there is still a lot more to this story and we're going to continue that in the next part, but we're going to take a pause here because we're already at over an hour. There's still this issue of Indonesia comes back up again and again, especially when when the US backs a brutal military coup and basically a genocide in Indonesia in which between 1 and 3 million people were killed in 1965 and 1966. The CIA was deeply involved in that. So Indonesia is one of those issues like Cuba, like Bay of Pigs, that constantly returns in U.S. politics. You know, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of dearth of good information about what JFK's foreign policy actually was. And there's this facile portrayal that, you know, JFK was just another U.S. president who was the same as all the others. And the killing was this freak accident. But clearly, everything that we're talking about is leading up to the 1963 assassination. And that assassination was directly related to his refusal to go along with a lot of these uh, Cold War imperialist policies, his attempt to try to pursue peace and diplomacy. And we're still at the beginning of that. It's going to, I think, uh, even pick up some more steam soon. So this is the Empire and Deep State series. I'm Ben Norton, and I'm co-hosting this with Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis of the American Exception podcast. If you want to get early access to all of the podcast episodes, and I guess now video as well, early access, you can go to patreon.com americanexception American Exception. And then eventually later, the episodes will be published on the YouTube channel. So thanks to everyone who watches or listens to this program, and we'll see you all next time.
1: Thank you.